Living in retrospect is a bad idea, and sometimes we let our same old stories hold us back from the new adventure God has for us. But here's the truth. God wants to restory us, transforming our tales of tragedy into epics to anticipate. In this podcast, Mary DeMuth interviews people who have lived through God's powerful restory process, where they've discovered healing, joy, and a brand new perspective. So let's shed that old, painful story and find the freedom we've been longing for. The Restory Podcast starts now. Restory Season 2, Episode 19. Today's podcast is brought to you by BooklaunchMentor.com. If you're an author needing to polish your book before you launch it, or you need coaching and help to launch your staggering work of genius, check out the services at BooklaunchMentor.com. Today, I am welcoming Aaron Graham, who is a pastor at the District Church, and I'm really excited about having him on the program today. And he completely wowed and surprised me with his story. It was not what I expected, and I'm not going to say a thing about it because I want you to hear it from him. So here we go with Aaron Graham. Hey, everyone. It's Mary at The Restory Show, and I have Aaron Graham on with me, and he is a church planter in the D.C. area. Now he's a pastor. I guess, I don't know how you graduate from church planter to pastor. Do you still consider yourself a church planter? A church planter at heart, but yeah, it's hard to call our our church a, a, a plant anymore. But it's great to be on here with you, Mary. Thanks for all that you do and for um, all that you write and pour into to pastors and leaders. Thank you. It's I'm so excited to have you on here today because I know, in fact, I don't have any idea what story you're going to share, so it's going to be really fun for me too. But why don't you let the listeners know a little bit about yourself, like where you grew up and how you met Christ and college, wife, children, stuff like that. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a missionary kid and a pastor kid. And you're still okay, right? I'm still okay. I'm recovering, <laughs> but I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> We lived, my parents were missionaries in Liberia when I was in elementary school and then in Kuwait, uh, this tiny little country called Kuwait that nobody had heard of in 1990. We spent a few months there. And then there's many stories in that. And then uh, we moved to the suburbs of Richmond, Virginia when I was 10, where I experienced culture shock coming from being a missionary kid. And I went to middle school, high school, and college in Richmond, went to the University of Richmond, felt called into ministry in high school then really kind of clarified that call during my college years and moved to Boston when I was 22 after I graduated to do urban ministry and unintentionally planted a church. Met my wife, Amy. We pastored that for five years, went to graduate school, and then moved to D.C. almost 10 years ago. And we started the district church out of our home um, six and a half years ago. Um, here in the heart of Washington, D.C. We've adopted two kids. Um, Elijah is eight years old, and Natalie is five years old, um, and they're a bundle of joy and energy. Yes, those are some busy ages. I bet you've got a lot of scheduling things going on. (laughs) Activities are beginning. Yes, exactly, especially the first part of the year. Okay, so you said, I want to back up just a little bit before we get into your story. You said you accidentally planted a church. I, I love that. Can you give us a little nutshell about how do you accidentally plant a church? <laughs> yeah, so um, I was invited to lead a Bible study. I, was, I had taken like an intentional vow of poverty after I graduated from University of Richmond, which is a kind of a preppy, up, preppy upwardly mobile school and felt called in ministry and I felt called to go live and work among the poor, and I felt like everybody who does work around issues of poverty don't know poor people. I mean, that's maybe not the case with missionaries, but it's certainly the case in a city like D.C., where people are trying to do public policy and social policy, but they're 18 
steps or people removed from that. So I really felt called to incarnational ministry. And so I gave everything I had away, moved up to Boston, prepared to live on the streets, was taken in from taken in by some low income families and met some incredible people through it. And one of them um, was two mothers, um, matriarchs in, the, in a low income neighborhood of Boston um, who had purchased an abandoned auto repair shop, turned it into a thrift store and had a vision that there would be prayer there. And so when I was volunteering for a food program, delivering food to their thrift shop, um, kind of food pantry, we found out that we shared a faith in Christ in common, and they were really passionate about reaching the youth. And they thought somehow that me as a 22-year-old white boy from the Burbs would have the ability <laughs> to reach urban gang-involved youth. <laughs> that makes so much sense. Yeah, I mean, it's just so natural, right? So they invited, they had a vision that there'd be prayer. They weren't trying to start a church. So that's why we met on Saturday mornings in Mossis, the matriarch. Um, and Ma Fan was the other one. They said, uh, we'll cook breakfast if you come and lead a Bible study. So I had just met this beautiful young woman named Amy Boyer, who was living in Worcester doing campus ministry with college students. And so our first date was me inviting her to lead a Bible study with me at this abandoned auto repair shop. <laughs> and, um, and so it was just going to be a one week, you know, it's like a speaking engagement. You just go, you serve. And there was maybe like eight to 10 people that showed up. And uh, it was like the closest thing to church I'd ever experienced. I grew up in the church. I was a missionary kid, pastor's kid, because people were so real. And people were like, my life is a mess. I'm struggling with this addiction or, you know, this violence is going on in our neighborhood or in my home and I need God. And so the Holy Spirit just showed up and are we meeting next week, next week, next week. And then before long, they were calling me pastor. (laughs) Uh, they call Amy First Lady. Uh, they call me priest. They call me father. I mean, any different backgrounds or no backgrounds. And Rabbi. What'd you say, Rabbi? Rabbi. Yeah, um, and so, so before long, we, you know, we planted a church. And um, but the reason I say it was unintentional is like we weren't trying to. Just you plant the gospel, and churches plant, churches grow up from it. And I think that's what happened. That's so cool. All right, so let's get into the story that you've prayed about and asked God to put on your heart today to share. And I'm so excited to hear about it. So what story would you like to share today? There are so many stories that I could share. I feel like there's new ones, new, new ones every day. But I think that one of the ones that I'll share actually, because I've been thinking about this recently as it relates to my own children, as I mentioned, Natalie is five and a half, almost six and Elijah's eight. And we're in the process of thinking about taking our first sabbatical because we're coming up on seven years since we planted the church. And trying to just unplug and we feel really called to, to pastor our church long term and just want to figure out um, what that what that looks like and be able to unplug, especially because my wife, Amy, um, is also a pastor and she's full time at our church. So we just, they're double pastor kids. And so we've been thinking about trying to put together kind of a global sabbatical where we would travel and we would take our kids to the places that when we were kids and teenagers formed our own calling and ministry, when God spoke to us. Because one of the things we're trying to discern is it's no longer just Aaron's calling, it's no longer just Amy's calling, but it's our family's calling. And so we have to approach this as a family sabbatical. And so um, so I've thought about, hey, what if we could take them to Liberia, to Kuwait, uh, where I lived as a kid, to Kenya, where we had an incredible trip when I was young and it really had an impact on my life. And then for Amy to Thailand and to Spain. I mean, that would I don't know if that we could pull this trip off. It's probably not a cheap trip, but just to take them to these places where we felt God's call and then connect with missionaries and ministries and to help our kids just step out of this kind of privileged context of 
you know, even though we're surrounded by homeless and low income families in DC, they're still in a, in an American bubble, so to speak. So, um, but anyways, that all got all that to say is thinking about my sabbatical planning and our family, um, got me thinking about a story of something that happened when I was about six, seven years old. And so it was when uh, my parents had moved when I was six years old to be missionaries in Liberia. And we were living right outside of Monrovia, um, the capital city. And my dad had been invited to uh, basically be the pastor of this Christian boarding school and to teach at the seminary there. And um, we lived in, in a nice house, had a housekeeper there. But one of the things that my dad and I would often do is that we would hike to one of the remote villages that was maybe about three miles from where we lived and, you know, uh, avoid the snakes and step over the anthills and all this stuff. And as a young kid, you're both scared and just, it's an adventuresome. You kind of love this kind of stuff. And, um, I remember just a very vivid memory of meeting a young woman named Masa who was born malnourished. She was about six months old when we first met her and we met kind of the village chief and must have been 50, 75 people that lived in this village. Um, and it was, it was very remote. So, you know, no running water or electricity or anything. And this, this young um, girl was born malnourished. And it really struck me to hear that the men would eat in the village first and the, the children would eat last because the, you know, the adults kind of had to be strong to take care of the kids or whatever the, the reasoning was sort of like, oh, I guess, you know, on an airplane, they say, you know, if you're, a, if you're the parent, put the oxygen mask on first, and then you can help your child. But it just didn't sit right with me, it didn't sit right with my dad. So we would um, go back and visit and take food um, to Masa, we would boil some hard, hard boiled eggs, take her protein. And I just remember at a young age feeling kind of connected to her story. Well, after a few months of doing this and kind of spending our Saturday mornings hiking to the village, uh, we, we got word that Masa had actually passed away, that she died of, of hunger. And I just remember just that troubling me, like, and just asking my parents a ton of questions around it. And, and actually feeling, you know, I, I wouldn't have put it in these terms then, but feeling a sense of guilt and shame that maybe I didn't do enough. Like, God, what, what if we went on Wednesdays as well? Or we went more often. Could we have prevented her from dying? And it, it got me asking this question. And I'm sure I would say it in different ways when I was eight years old than I would say it today. But the, the, the basic question is, why do kids die of preventable causes? Like, why is Masa's story the story of thousands of kids every day that die of preventable causes. I know that a few years ago, it was it, the statistic was 30,000 kids that die every day of preventable causes like um, poor drinking water or malnutrition. Um, thankfully, through the result of a lot of generosity and Christian work and international work and foundation work, that I think that number has dropped from 30,000 to 20,000. But there's still a lot of work to do. So that began a question for me of, of me trying to figure out how do I steward my privilege? And how do I do that in the context of my calling as a Christian? What, is, what does that look like? And, um, and I, don't think I, I still don't think I have the answer to that question. But I think it really, as I trace my story since being a kid in Liberia, a lot of times it comes back to that formative story. And the interesting thing is, is that you know, being a parent now, I know that I spend so much energy trying to shield my kids from bad influences, right? Like, it just, it's like, think about what school they go to and what their experiences were from the day. And like, you know, you just want, you want to guard their hearts and protect their tender hearts. And I don't want them to hear, 
you know, curse words or see certain things on TV and like betray that innocence. And I think one of the things that I learned from growing up and seeing poverty in Liberia, and then when I was 10 years old, um, being involved in the Persian Gulf War, our family was actually held hostage in that war. That's a whole nother story. But but those experiences made me realize that our calling as parents is not to protect our kids from suffering, but to protect our kids from evil. That there's a difference between the two. And I would not trade my experience in Liberia or Kuwait for anything because I wouldn't be who I am today. I wouldn't have the sense of like how, you know, of doing what we're doing today, like where our church started DC 127, a foster care and adoption ministry to care for kids and families in crisis in our nation's capital here who need adoptive homes and, and forever homes. And so I wouldn't trade that. And so now I'm trying to figure out with my own kids, how do I, how do I introduce them to experiences where God can get a hold of their heart? I mean, they have to respond to God's initiative and love, but I'm just beginning to understand that it, it doesn't mean shielding our kids from the needs of the world. It's actually helping them face the world as it is and then figure out in light of the gospel, can we continue to, to love it? So that's my, that's a little of my story, maybe the question that came out of my story. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I think one of the books I wrote was called uh, Authentic Parenting in a Postmodern Culture. And it was about basically that same question and how we have built what I call a cult of protectionism in the United States in our parenting. We will protect our children at any cost and that that seems to be the highest value is to protect. And there is a, there's some really good parts of that. And like you said, we do need to protect our children from evil, but also we hear all about this. And, you know, as a pastor, you're hearing it too about, oh, those millennials, you know, <laughs> so privileged and so whatever. I think this might be an antidote to, to getting everything you want. And how can a parent, I mean, how can you strategically do that? Or how have you seen it in your church of families integrating into society and society's problems and yet still being parents to their kids? Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, so a little bit of our context in the district church, uh, we planted it seven years ago. And it's a church largely of, of young professionals, 20 and 30-somethings, very international. So there's almost 60 nations represented in our church. And so one of the things is that we have a very small percentage of uh, families with children in our church. And if they have children, their children are like under five. So for instance, in Columbia Heights, which is one of our locations, we'll have maybe 500, 550 adults on a Sunday, and we'll have like 40 to 50 kids, which is like 10%, where a lot of my church planning friends that are more in suburban context will have 30 or 40% in children's ministry. So it's just a smaller percentage. And in DC, you can't live financially very easily. Not that it's not possible, but it's much more difficult to live on one income. So most moms and dads are, they're taking maternity leave and going back to work rather than taking, oh, I'm going to take the next five years off. Um, because the, the, the salary levels, entry level in DC are pretty low. They go up later in life, but a lot of people are just trying to make ends meet even on two salaries here. So all that to say is that a lot of the folks in our church who have stayed and remained to build roots here are beginning to ask those exact questions. We have the opportunity to form people more in their 20s before they've made decisions like who are they going to marry? Are they going to have kids? What it, where are they going to live? You know, How are they going to manage their finances and other things? 
Um, so that's, that's kind of our opportunity, but I think it's a few years before. Um, so hopefully we'll learn from everything you've written about that. <laughs> yeah, I made all the mistakes. So <laughs> I always worry about the fact that I wrote parenting books because, you know, my kids are going to like come back later and say, ah, <laughs> you were not <laughs> good at that. <laughs> So be careful what you write out there. Sure. Tell us a little bit uh, now that you've intrigued me about your uh, kidnapping or your, um, I guess it's not kidnapping, but you were held hostage, you said. Tell us a little bit about that story because I can't let it go. Oh, man. The okay. listeners would be upset if I just like, la, 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 gloss over that one. So when we were 10, um, so we left Liberia after three years there. And we ended up moving to this tiny little country called Kuwait that nobody had ever heard of in the Middle East. And Three months after we were there, Saddam Hussein invaded. This was when Iraq army um, was the fourth biggest army in the world in 1990. And uh, nobody thought they were going to really invade Kuwait. Kuwait was helpless. They didn't barely had an army. And, um, you know, no, people just didn't think they were that dumb to do that. But they did. And we were staying right downtown near the parliament building. And troops broke into our home all morning. We're, you know, we're violent with my mom at certain points and, and and we you know we had ak-47s to our backs and other things and we made the decision to evacuate and jumped in a car that was shot out by um from the violence that morning drove across the city and i you know looking out the car window i'm seeing dead bodies and stuff and i mean i'm 10 years old this is just not stuff that you're, you're supposed to be processing at that age and uh, we ended up eventually making it to the american embassy where um, a bunch of Westerners went. So folks from Europe and Australia and America um, went because basically when Saddam Hussein invaded the whole Western world, uh, did a buildup of international coalition in Saudi Arabia to say, hey, you're not coming into Saudi Arabia. You might have come into Kuwait, but you're not coming to Saudi Arabia. In fact, we're going to push you back into Iraq. You know, I'm sure a lot of it was about oil and other things, but that was there was a lot of consensus against Iraq at the time and, and consensus that we should act. So Saddam Hussein did what he could do, which was, no, I'm going to take Westerners hostage so you can't invade and drop bombs because you'll kill your own people if you do it. So we were basically taken as human shields in a sense. And so we were we went to the American embassy and we were surrounded by troops. This is There's a, a wall with a you know, fence, barbed wire fence all around it, but they cut off our electricity and our water. And basically we had to survive with the resources that we had in, you know, this, I don't know how big it was, maybe five acre facility. And so my mom, my brother and I were there for six weeks. Um, and then we were, uh, so I'm saying let the women and children be released. So we came back and then my dad was held another three months until mid December. And one of the cool stories that came out related to my dad's release is, is actually pretty connected to my upbringing. So I grew up Southern Baptist. Our church is more interdenominational, non-denominational. We work a lot with in the Baptist world as well now. I mean, I have some, some great relationships there. But I, we grew up, we, we were serving with the, it was called the Foreign Mission Board then. It's now called the International Mission Board. And so every um, December, there is what's known as the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. And that's the money that's pulled together to go into the cooperative program that then funds missionaries. I think it's about 5,000 missionaries at this point all across the world. And it's a beautiful thing because then missionaries don't have to focus on fundraising. They can focus on ministry, whereas most missionaries globally have to spend a couple months a year fundraising. And so so this was the time of year, the end of the year, where churches all across our country were doing, um, raising money for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. But the Lottie Moon Christmas offering kicks off with a week of prayer for global missions. And during that week of prayer, there were millions of Baptists all across the U.S. that were praying specifically from my dad, Maurice 
to be released uh, from being a hostage because it was in the news. I mean, it's like, here's this Baptist missionary being held hostage. And so the, the crazy story is this. So, so Saddam Hussein in late November of that year started complaining that he was having bad dreams, that he would, he would wake up in the middle of the night and said that God was, the spirits were troubling, that God was troubling him in the middle of the night and he couldn't sleep. Well, this continued and actually began to escalate in early December um, to the point that he, he got up one morning and he met with his cabinet and he told them that he was, he was being so traumatized by his dreams that he ordered his cabinet to release all of the hostages in Iraq and in Kuwait. So literally the next day, my dad was released and came home. And the, the kind of God story in all of this and kind of putting the pieces in hindsight back are, one is when I started reading the book of Daniel and about Nebuchadnezzar, I was like, oh my gosh, this is like the same thing, like this evil world leader who like, like God moves on his heart to do something that's like just for a minute. And it's like the exact same part of the world. Like Nebuchadnezzar Babylon was like modern day Iraq. King Cyrus, the same thing. You have these visions and it's like corrupt king, but like was really open at times to God. And like, so, so that was kind of interesting. And then the other thing was just for me as a, as a young kid, a 10 year old to have this sense that like, no, God answers prayer. Like we can pray and God answers prayer. In fact, God can move on the hearts of even the world's most wicked leaders. So, so before we just go off to war and think that like violence is going to solve all our problems, are we people of prayer first and foremost? And I think that, um, that played a big impact on my life, but that was, yeah, that was the second story. Wow. <laughs> I certainly don't have that story, but that's like so crazy. And how did you, while you were there in the compound, how did you, I mean, if there was no water, I'm sure there must've been some water somewhere. How did you kind of like, did you guys cooperate? Did you make friends with people? I mean, how does it work? Yeah. So, I mean, it was all Westerners, a lot of Americans and there were some water tanks. So there's no new water coming in, but there were some water tanks. So we had to ration water. So maybe sponge baths once a week and you know, you had to try to clean the water. And then actually after we left, uh, they dug a well because the ocean was only like three blocks away. They dug a well and you, it was salt water, so you couldn't drink it. But they used it to like plant a garden and <laughs> try to grow some crops. Oh, my gosh. This was happening. And they raided a grocery store like the day of the invasion and brought a lot of the food. So my dad ate tuna fish and rice for three months. That's all he ate. And so he was well fed, but it was the exact same meal. But they, the other thing was that right when my dad was released, they were just about out of food. And we're going to have to just surrender to the troops and have them take him up to Baghdad or something. And so the timing of it was, was really miraculous as well. And so then what made your family decide to go back to, was it Virginia? Is that where you were from? Yeah, no, it, they it wasn't. So we, we, when we, the reason we left Liberia, uh, there was a couple of reasons, but one of the reasons is because the Civil War broke out. We lost all of our stuff. And so we went from one war to another. So literally our family lost all of our possessions in two back-to-back wars. And so, you know, my parents are like, okay, yeah, we're trying to guard our kids from evil and, you know, suffering. Okay. You know, we don't want to guard it, but two wars. Okay. Maybe we should settle. Maybe it's time to regroup. (laughs) So yeah, regroup. But there was a church, um, a Baptist church, Bonner Baptist church outside of Richmond that um, called my dad when they were on their way to Kuwait and said, we really feel like you'd be perfect for this position as senior associate pastor. And, And I was like, that's great, but we're called to Kuwait. And and when he got back and we got, and we kind of got regrouped, he called Richmond. He was like, yeah, they're like, yeah, the position's still open. We, we told you, we felt like God was calling you here. You just, <laughs> they were like both right. So we ended up in Richmond then. 
Oh, that's awesome. So you, you know, you were a, an MK missionary kid and a pastor's kid and give the listeners the positive of that because so many times we hear about, oh yeah, I was a pastor's kid or, oh, these terrible things happened to me and I was a missionary kid and I'm still recovering. Was there some good about it <laughs> too? I mean, obviously I can see some fruit in it just talking to you, but. Absolutely. I think the thing on, I'll speak on the missionary kid part first. I think the thing about being a missionary kid is that you learn to be a third culture kid, meaning that you're never at home in one culture. You're kind of in between. That has challenges to it because you can never feel at home. But the, the, the opportunity of it is that you're able to thrive in a globalized world, both professionally um, in, in terms of jobs. A lot of times you know another language. You're able to relate uh, cross-culturally to the nations that have come to the U.S. And so from a spiritual level, it's strategic missions-wise because – you know, I'm a white guy, but I'm a pastor in a church with 60 nationalities in it. And so I have to be able to, to relate cross-culturally, not just on a mission trip, but in my own backyard. And so that's a real gift. And I find that a lot of missionary kids end up flocking to urban environments like a New York City or a D.C. or an L.A. or San Francisco. Our church is full of missionary kids because of that. They're just comfortable in these cross-cultural rather than monocultural context. So I think that's a real asset in our global economy and trying to figure out where there's, there's a lot of fear in our nation around diversity and increased diversity, but I see it as an opportunity to be a witness for the gospel. And I think when you grow up as a missionary kid, you're learning, you know, that yeah, whether you're in language skill or just really your parents are having to do that. So I think that's a, a real strength. I think on the past, the pastor's kid, the PK side of things, um, some of it depends on the nature of your parents' role as a pastor. So my dad wasn't the lead pastor, so he wasn't preaching every week. So he preached, you know, every couple of months, but I wasn't being used in all the stories <laughs> books that were being written about, like I'm probably going to do with my kids or you that like, so, so I didn't have to like, you know, worry about that. Like the, the, the spotlight was on me a, a whole lot, but he was this, you know, second leader of a pretty large church. And, um, and so I think that one of the, the real opportunities and privileges of that is that you learn how to lead an integrated life. What I mean by that is like any healthy pastor has to be able to, you know, lead at church, but also lead at home. Like you can't just compare, you can't separate the minister from the ministry. Like a healthy soul, a healthy family leads to a, a healthy ministry. And so, um, so because of that, you know, I began to, to realize that you cannot compartmentalize your life. Like you cannot be as Peter Scazzaro says in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, you can't be uh, spiritually mature and emotionally immature. Or, you know, you can't uh, be isolated relationally and be thriving spiritually. So I think just seeing my parents model that out in their own walk with God, but also seeing how you, know, you just, as you get older, I'm like 16, I'm like, so mom, dad, you get a housing allowance. Like, what's that? Why, why, did, why does the government give a housing allowance to pastors where they don't have to pay federal income taxes on their house, what's that about? And it's like, oh, because, you know, pastors and ministers do so much ministry in their home, like hosting people and all and this kind of benefit. And it's like, oh yeah, because we do ministry out of our home. And, and so you just begin to see some of that. And I think that that's a real asset where um, I think some kids uh, grow up where their parents' professional lives, they never see it. So I got to go with my dad to the hospital all the time to go visit patients. Cause it would be like a Saturday and he was in charge of that. And so he'd be like, do you want to come? And I'd be like, yeah. And I would get to go and hear him pray and visit. And I'm like thinking about like that, my, my daughter, Natalie's five and she's so drawn to sick people and helping. I'm like thinking about how do I bring her along on that? So I just think that some of those things, um, I guess what I'm saying is 
I think as a child, you're able to be more integrated with your parents' work if you choose to than you do in some other professions. Because at the end of the day, church ministry is family ministry. And so, so I think that's, that's an asset that can come with um, some challenges, particularly if a child doesn't have the space to be themselves apart from their parents' identity. And I think that's where it's really important for a, a parent to figure out how to give their child space at the right time. And every kid's different, I think, on that. Sure. Oh, I love that. And we all have such different families and different stories, but it's just nice to hear some good, positive things. And I love that your dad took you along. And I think that's just the nature of discipleship, where Jesus did things alongside people. He just took people along. And uh, we're so isolated in our little houses on our streets with our you know, garages and porches that aren't used that we forget that just taking people along. That was one of those New Testament words, peripateo, which means just walking and walking and circumventing and walking and walking and walking. It's everywhere throughout the New Testament, and that's what mm-hmm. Jesus did. He just walked and walked and walked with people. So as you look back, I, get, I usually ask people what kind of advice they would give, but I, I can't really ask what advice would you give to like an eight-year-old boy who saw a little girl die in Liberia. So um, I'll ask instead... What kind of advice would you give to someone who feels called to ministry full-time? Like if you could sit someone down, what would you say to them? Yeah, well, I have a huge passion for people who are called um, to full-time ministry. Now, you know, I believe that every believer and disciple is a minister and that we minister in the workplace. And it's so far beyond just the walls of the church. But I do believe that God taps and calls specific people to be pastors and work in the local church and to be missionaries to extend the gospel to places it hasn't gone. And and I think that that's a, that's in, in the efforts to broaden our concept of ministry to the workplace, we've in a sense reduced the way that we honor and care for those who are stewarding the particular call to be in full-time ministry, meaning that you're thinking about it right when you wake up, and you're thinking about it all the way till you go to bed at night, right? And you, once again, you can't compartmentalize. You can be not on email and working in that sense, but your your art, your heart's there. Your mind's engaged with it. So I have a huge passion for pouring into young people who are called into ministry because one of my convictions. I'm going to be writing a book on this uh, this year. Yay! <laughs> It'll be my first book by faith. So you guys pray that um, <laughs> you can help me in this because you've blaze the trail, um, Mary, in this way, and writing books and, and sharing your story, but is is that I really believe, as Bill Hybel says, is that the local church is the hope of the world, that it's God's design in terms of how to change the world. And I think that young people today think, oftentimes, will think that the church is part of the problem with society rather than the solution to society. So when young people think about changing the world, they don't think about, oh, like I want to go start a church or go work for a church. They think about like for me, I was like, I want to go work for World Vision and be the president of World Vision because World Vision is incredible. They like literally save kids' lives like Masa who are dying. Like they do it in Jesus' name. And then I realized, oh, well, like World Vision exists because like the local church like wasn't caring about poor people or like poverty and stuff like that. And it's like we always need World Visions. Like that work has to continue. You can't do it on that scale. One church can't do it on that scale. But my point is, is that like all of the parachurch ministries and other things uh, that get on campuses and other places, they exist because the local church wasn't doing it. And so the local church is the only institution that's focused bottom line on discipleship, helping people become more like Jesus. Every other sector of society has something else at the bottom line. So if you want to impact those sectors, entertainment, 
you know, culture, um, the government, law, education, healthcare. We've got to be helping people become more like Jesus. And the place to do that is the local church. So if you want to change the world, disciple people in the local church who will be sent out to go change the world. So I guess my encouragement would be to first get a vision for the local church and the role of the local church. Even if you're working for a parachurch, how you partner with the local church in that. Um, and then the second thing is to figure out how to do training. And um, I think that there, increasingly I'm encouraging young people to spend time in a context of ministry where you can do uh, experiential learning so that you're not just going to the academy and learning something intellectually that you have no context to apply it to. So we have like a one-year fellowship um, we call it district fellows where people who feel called to ministry or just exploring that come and spend a year on staff with us. They might be beginning their seminary during that time and kind of exploring that. And my hope is to give them a great experience working for a local church that whether they spend you know years beyond that with us or go somewhere else, that they'll have kind of gotten trained and gotten exposure to that. And so I'm seeing more and more people as it relates to seminary and other things where they're doing seminary, either distance or online, or they're going out for the intensives, but they're writing their papers about where they're working and where they're doing ministry. And they're able to integrate it more rather than I'm going to seminary full time and I'm going to do like this two month internship where I'm not going to be able to get any responsibility. And I might be able to do some observational learning, but I can't go more in depth. So I really, um, I guess what I'd say to those who are exploring a calling to ministry is to find a ministry where you respect the leadership, where you know you can grow and figure out how to go serve there and be faithful in the little. And the harvest is ready and the workers are few. So if you're faithful in the little, you will be entrusted with much. Um, but you know, the degree stuff in ministry doesn't mean a whole lot anymore, honestly. Like You can go and get a lot of debt and graduate from seminary. There's a lot of seminary graduates I would never hire at our church, even though they're way, way more qualified on paper, because they haven't had the experience in ministry of walking with people. And I think that's that's really critical. I love that. I have a, a 24-year-old who's definitely still thinking of full-time ministry, so I'm going to make her listen to this. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I won't make her. All right. So that I love that. And I think I think this idea of mentoring and discipling is it seems to be part of your heartbeat, and I appreciate that. So as you look back over 2016, and now we're in 2017, how has God restoried you and your family in the past year? Yeah, no, that's a great question. One of the things I think the way that God is is restoring restoring us. Uh, I like how you created a new word there. <laughs> um, I think uh, so. One of the things that we're doing as a as a um, church this month is that we're going through this thing called the Spire Plan, which is an acronym for caring for yourself spiritually, physically, intellectually, relationally, and emotionally. It's about soul care. That what if in 2017 we care more about who we're becoming than what we're accomplishing which is a very countercultural thing in Washington, D.C., Yeah, where our people work on the Hill and the White House. And it's all, you know, I got to be the most educated, work for the most powerful person and all that. And so I think the way that God's restoring our family is just to bring it back to what I shared at the beginning, is that it, it's, it's a lot less about my calling or Amy's calling. I think we're, it's more about our calling as a family and being able to figure out what that is and clarifying that. And I, and I, and I know that's right where we are in DC at district church, but what does that even look like? Because you have so many opportunities to say yes to certain things or no to certain things. And so the big thing for us is trying to figure out how to enter into a sabbatical to stop when we've been going in ministry for so many years 
that's a very countercultural thing. And, um, and I'm, I'm just really excited for our kids to have my undivided attention for a few months and to see what emerges from them, not from my initiative, but from their voice. And so, um, so I think I'm thinking a lot more about the experiences and how do I introduce them to experiences that are outside of all of our comfort zones where God can speak a fresh word, not only to Amy and I, but to our kids, because I think that's going to inform their calling. And my greatest legacy is not going to be district church. It's going to be Elijah and Natalie. And so I have to be thinking even at 36 years old about that. And so I think that's a way that God's restoring us from the culture of DC, but also this, the, the individualistic notion of just an individual calling to a family calling. So. Yeah, I love that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the Restory Show, Aaron. I know that um, it's going to encourage so many people. I, I appreciate your story and you have some pretty crazy stories. So thanks for sharing those with us. Well, it's great to be on and I'm so grateful for your voice and how you share your story and so many people find healing. And uh, we're looking forward to you visiting DC and uh, meeting some folks in our church and encouraging them. Thanks for listening to The Restory Show. Do you mind if I pray for you? Lord, I pray for the person listening to this today that you would be near, that you would help them to see that this world is bigger than we've ever anticipated, that there are people all over the world who need to know about you. And I pray that you would help us to see our place in the midst of your kingdom building. Help us to to press into you and to have your heartbeat for those who need you and help us also to be mindful of the world where there are people suffering for you and also just suffering. So uh, elevate our minds, elevate our eyes, elevate our hearts to be aware of what's going on in the world. Help us also just to say yes to you in whatever hard thing that you ask us to do. And maybe sometimes some of those things are not hard, but they're easy, but we just don't feel like doing it. But I pray that we would be people of the cross who say yes to you and who trust you no matter what. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for dying for us on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to know more about today's show with links and extended information, please go to marydemuth.com restory 2-19 and may you live a brand new story this week.